Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Hello. How is everybody doing? We, uh, we hope everybody's staying safe, um, all your relatives are fine, your elderly relatives, your grandparents, all that, all that jazz. Uh, dark times uh, and weird times we currently live in with the whole quarantine thing. Um, but great for myself and my partner, Laura, who uh, you also know from the Ball Millennials podcast. Say hello, Laura. Hi. We're, um, hi, hi. We're starting a new thing. Um, this was my idea. This was your idea. We are going to get interrupted by... Oh, this kitten. You may have just heard her. <laughs> She's very mischievous. She does not like being told what to do, much like me. And she will make very vocal protests when you try and make her behave again, yeah. much like me. She's, I think, currently 14, 13 weeks. Very young, very squealy, very naughty. Very squealy. Um, very squealy. Her name is Peach because she's short and fuzzy. And sweet. And sweet. She's a peach. She's very sweet, but she's also a fucking nuisance. Very naughty. Very, very naughty. Um, well, like I was saying, welcome to our uh, new podcast, still in the Bald Millennials forum. Uh, Bald Millennials is kind of like the uh, m- like parent group of all these different shows that will be within the Bald Millennials format. Um, one way or another, it will feature myself uh, and most likely Laura. Um, just... This version of the podcast will be just myself and Laura, where we get a bit, um, we get a bit, bit more deep, you know. We get a bit more deep into some real hard hitting content. Um, so this whole show, the entire uh, pr- process and the premise, is uh, I guess essentially sort of inspired from the uh, My Favorite Murder podcast. Well, yeah, that's one know? of my favorite. Um, I nearly said my favorite murders, my favorite podcasts, but I think it's going to be, we're going to do a little bit more like true crime, but also maybe like conspiracy theories. Yeah. That sort of Maybe stuff. just um, move. She's making a move for that table again. Maybe just move those bowls if you can. Well, I, uh, I'll, I'll explain the, um, the show a bit more in, in, in uh, a bit clearly. So Laura will be delving into murder mysteries um um i guess just delving into um grand mysteries into you know crimes that were solved crimes that weren't solved um things that no one has any freaking clue on and then things that were just peculiar um while i will be taking a deep dive into specific serial killers um So I'll be looking into uh, just every single aspect of who they are, like um, early lives, um, what caused them to be a killer, the extent of their uh, killing reign, um, as well as just other general uh, thoughts and discussions on them as individuals and um you know, facts about them that not everyone really knows about, I suppose. Um, so, without a f- further ado, um, with everything said, 
let's um let's kick everything off. So we have what That's are we a talking very about? Professional intro. Thank you. Well done. Uh, what are, what are you discussing with us today? So today I'm going to talk about uh a um story that I did hear for the first time on my favorite murder. So I guess I am sort of like there's nothing new in what I'm telling. I guess just the way I'm going to tell the story, but it's the story of Daniel Laplante, mm. which I have told you before, I Briefly believe. Briefly, I've mentioned to me. Yeah. Um, I just think it's horrific and it's like my worst nightmare. Like I won't tell you, obviously, without spoiling yeah. the ending. But <coughs> the the end of this story is like one of my worst nightmares. Yeah, so. it is quite frankly <coughs> terrifying and yeah. horrific. Horrific. Let's jump into it, boys. So am I going first? Yeah, you go first. Let's go All first. right. So I've got my little notes here because... I can basically remember the story off by heart. Yeah, because best to have something here to go. It's with. um, it's kind of worn into my memory, but <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of never, details. It never leaves you. No, it really doesn't. Not a story yeah. like this. Yeah. Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit of a backstory about Daniel. Please do first. Um, also, I just want to like make the point known that I don't believe that. Just because you have a horrific childhood and a really terrible start to your life, like, excuses terrible actions. But I do think it's interesting when you look at all these serial killers, so many of them have either traumatic childhoods yeah. or traumatic head injuries is a big thing as well with serial killers. Some sort of pattern yeah. with a lot of these um, these people. Yeah. Um, okay, so story set in the 70s. Oh, no, the 80s, sorry. He was born in Massachusetts in America, obviously, in the 1970s. Um, so there's not a lot of details available on his childhood because he has like multiple personality disorders. So it's kind of difficult to get concrete information from him, but it was a pretty traumatic childhood. Um, it's known that he suffered physical, sexual and psychological abuse from his father, who was the main offender. There were other people in his life. I don't think his stepmother was like particularly nice to him, but his father was like the main offenders mm. which obviously led to him having troubles at school yeah. both academically and socially because that's stuff just has hand to, in hand yeah that stuff's things. gonna fuck yeah. with you and make you a bit of a weirdo totally, yeah he was diagnosed with dyslexia um which back in the 80s i think would be terrible to have something like dyslexia yeah it was what it was one of those times where things like that were considered taboo and weird like why can't you just be this yeah just be normal yeah. quote mm. um kids referred to him as creepy and weird which if you see a photo of him <laughs> he really looks <laughs> like he looks like the weird kid in class. Yeah. Like we don't have s- school shootings; isn't really a thing in Australia. No, but, but he looks like if you were at a school in Australia, he would be a kid where you'd be like, "If we had school shootings, it'd be you." Yeah. Um. Pause anyway, this, pause the podcast right now to look up uh, Daniel Laplante. Daniel Laplante. He's look, so look, creepy looking right now. Um. He's also kind of <laughs> sad looking. He has sad eyes. Like, right. he's creepy, but he has, he looks damaged. Um, anyway, damaged so kids. when he was an early teen, he was sent to a psychiatrist for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder, which I didn't look into much further because I didn't have time. But I'm assuming that's kind of like in the same ballpark as ADD, ADHD, I would assume. You would assume so, yeah. Um, then to make matters worse, this is the part that I found really sad. 
So he's sent to a psychiatrist to help assist him with his horrific life, with his childhood sexual abuse. And then his psychiatrist sexually abuses him during their sessions for like years. Which is not what you want. That is really not what you want. Um, so in his early teens, he becomes a small time thief. He breaks into people's properties and steals valuables. This then escalates to him taking things, but also leaving things and moving things around in the house to like fuck with the minds of the people. So like someone would come out and see that like their sofa chair had been moved and they'd know Mm. that someone's obviously been in their house. It was kind of like mind games. Yeah. Paranormal. Okay. So 1986... Danny LaPlante obtains a phone number, which it's not been proven, but speculated that he got the phone number from robbing the house. So, like, found ah, the number written. You know how right. people used to write your own number yeah. on the landline? Because yeah. who remembers your own phone number? Exactly, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the phone number belonged to Annie and Jessica Andrews, who lived with their father, Brian. So, Danny begins calling... Annie and Jessica and talking to them over the phone. He tells them that he's a teen from a neighboring school. He tracks them down after seeing them and found them both attractive and was given their number by a friend. So like this is late 80s, so they didn't have Facebook or text. So yeah, that would be the only way you would get someone's phone number. Yeah, and it wasn't considered weird to do that. Whereas nowadays it's kind of like, who the, why the fuck are you calling I mean, it might me? be a little bit weird, but you wouldn't necessarily question it. Yeah, I mean, it's the 80s. There's no, like, like you said, there's yeah. no Tinder or... Yeah. So he tells the girls that he is, quote, a good looking athletic blonde boy who is well educated and lives in the area, which he's definitely not. Also, I feel like it's a red flag. If you have to tell someone you're athletic and blonde, chances are (laughs) you're probably not. uh, Um, On my Tinder profile. Also, another thing worth mentioning, which comes into play a bit shortly later, is the girl's mother had just recently passed away from cancer, which is why they just lived with their dad. So Danny chats with the girls and eventually he convinces the oldest one, Annie, to go on a date with him. Spoiler alert. It doesn't go well. It doesn't end well. Yeah. (laughs) Um, When Danny shows up at the house, he's definitely not blonde and athletic. Um, So obviously Annie's quite disappointed. The article I read specifically describes him as disheveled, greasy, dark haired with no attractive features. Oh, that is rough. So it's not even like, oh, he's kind of ugly, but he's yeah. got nice eyes. She's he like has the no Ramsey, attractive features. Gordon Ramsay of, uh, of attractive people just will fucking roast you if you are mm. not perfect. Mm-hmm. So Danny finds out on the date that Annie's mum has recently passed <clears throat> away and takes a, a weird interest in this. Annie later claims that it seemed as though he was obsessed with the death of her mother. He continually questioned her on how she felt the moment her mother died and how much her mother suffered, which is just like beautiful first date chat. Yeah. Also, what size are your feet? Tell me about your mother's death rattle. Like, it's just not not a good time. So they're on the date for the hour and then Annie unsurprisingly makes an excuse to go home and shocker there's no second date yeah girl get out of there so fuck because of their mother's recent passing <laughs> annie and her sister attempt to contact their mum through a seance in the basement which as is you also do important the start of every bad horror movie ever yeah so that same evening they hear a rhythmic knocking against their bedroom walls while they're sleeping which is creepy so as creepy. fuck Um, and this part's really sad. They take that as that the seance has worked and they start talking to their dead mother, 
asking questions and receiving, quote, responses via knocks on the wall, which is just really sad. Yeah. The knocking continues over the next few nights and still until it starts to actually disturb their sleep. It's so frequent and so loud. They also notice things go missing or things that were neatly laid out would be strung across the room, furniture would be moved, etc., etc. And so they then start to believe it's not their mother and they're actually being haunted by a demonic spirit. And unsurprisingly, they start to freak out. The girl's father believes that they're acting out due to the death of their mother and are emotionally struggling as you would be um and of course he doesn't believe that it's a demon haunting Mm. their house he just thinks they're making stuff up to try and get attention right so one evening their father who i believe was a bus driver so he works like odd hours like shift work so he'd work night times and stuff um so was yeah so their dad's a bus driver so he's out at weird hours. hours. So one <coughs> evening while he's out working, the knocking starts again, but this time instead of coming from the walls because they'd been hearing it, it like behind the plaster of the walls, they hear it coming from the basement, which is always, always Shocking. good. Um, so as you do, they go downstairs to the basement to investigate with a oh. kitchen knife. Good girls. Yeah, took a knife. Something. When they enter the basement... They see written on the walls in blood red something. I'm in your room. Come and find me. Oh, fuck that. So. Fuck that. That's I'm burning the fucking house down. Mm -hmm. Fuck that. Mm -hmm. So they obviously run out of the house screaming. They go to their neighbors and wait at the neighbor's house until the dad comes home. Dad goes downstairs, sees the writing on the walls, but still thinks it's the girls doing it for attention. Makes them go to counselling, which is, to be honest, not the worst idea, regardless of yeah. whether you think they're doing crazy stuff like that. So, weeks later, the same thing happens. There's a knocking coming from Annie's bedroom wall, where they enter the room, again, in the same blood red something. It's written, I'm back, find me if you can. So, they think it's written in blood, because it's like blood red something so again they go running out screaming out of the house go to the neighbors call dad blah 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 blah. dad comes home from work he still doesn't believe them and thinks they're making it up but he sees how like freaked out shook the girls are and it's like this is a really elaborate lie for them to have made up he then goes into the house to try and prove to them that there's no one inside but he now sees another message that's been written on the wall since the girls told him what was on the wall, saying, marry me, on the walls of one of the girls' bedrooms. Um, he he notes that the girls didn't mention that, so obviously it's been added While they were since gone. they yeah. were out of the house. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is where this is where it gets just like stuff Fellas, straight from my nightmares. Take tips. Oh, so then, oh my God, okay. So he turns around. On the other side of the room is Danny LaPlante. He's wearing the girl's dead mother's clothing, her makeup, a blonde wig, and he's holding a hatchet. There's something just so terrifying about hatchets. Like knives I can deal, hatchets just... Like an axe is too big to be taken seriously, but a hatchet is like small enough where it's like... Yeah, it's a death mission. You're a fucking psychopath. Yeah. So Danny runs at Brian, the father. They grapple for a bit. And then Danny escapes and, like, 
seemingly vanishes into mm. thin air and the father can't work out how Where he's he disappeared so quickly. So this is this is where it gets even creepier if that's possible. The police show up to the house. They find that the messages aren't written in blood, they're written in ketchup. They then, however, find a hidden crawl space behind the built-in cupboard in Annie's bedroom and inside the crawl space is Danny LaPlante hiding, which is how he managed to just seemingly vanish into thin air. So once he's arrested, oh God, they find he's been living inside the fucking walls of the house for like months on end. He's tunneled through the ground and like through the walls to get to different parts of the house. And he's punctured peepholes in all the different rooms so he can like watch the girls wherever they are. God. Dude, fuck that. That is just horrifying. He's He's a mole man. It's my worst nightmare mostly because I do really embarrassing stuff when I feel like no one's watching. Yeah. But yeah. So, LaPlante's arrested. He's sent to a juvenile facility where he's released in October 1987. Which, if you remember when I started this story, it all started in 1986. Yeah, what the fuck? So, he's held for like, I'm. it doesn't say what month he was arrested, but he's probably only like held for like months 12 months at the absolute yeah. maximum. Um, so, considering he tried to kill someone with a fucking hatchet, it's not long enough to have been locked away. So unsurprisingly, once he's released, he goes almost straight away back to robbing people and breaking into their homes, during which time he steals two handguns. And this is where it gets really sad and awful and meh. So December 1987, so literally two months after his release, he breaks into the Gustafsson home where Priscilla Gustafsson, who's only 33, and her two young children, Abigail and William, are living. Priscilla's husband, Andrew, is at work at the time. So when Andrew arrives home, he finds Priscilla face down on their bed, pillows splattered with blood. She's been raped by Daniela Plant and then shot multiple times in the head point blank. Andrew then finds his two children, five-year-old William, was drowned in the upstairs bath and eight-year-old Abigail was drowned in the downstairs bath. To this day, no one's really sure of the like specific motivation for the escalation because, I mean, he had a hatchet, so it wasn't looking like well, he was going to do great things to yeah, Annie and Jessica, but it, he'd never actually violently attacked someone. It didn't seem like it would be that much of a stretch. No, he's really far. gone from like zero to a hundred. Fuck, man. See, that's the thing with with, with, with people like this who get locked up mm. premature, like uh, and are let go prematurely. They don't have enough time yeah. to reconcile with themselves to change what's what's the, what they need to actually physically change about themselves. Yeah, so the article I was reading speculated that up until this point, in time, he'd never had like a violent outburst, like a violent sense. weapon, more so. Right. So they think that he was too afraid to confront mm. any of his victims when it would be like hand to hand combat. Yeah. Where with a gun, he could hold it to someone, make them stand still, tie them up, of and course, then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
Laplante is really quickly implicated, then police then mount a manhunt for him. A few times over in Townsend, Laplante breaks into a woman's house and kidnaps her in her vehicle. Thankfully, the woman escapes and then Laplante is found uh, 48 hours later hiding in a dumpster. He's sentenced to three life sentences for the murders of Priscilla and her two young children. Um, so to this day, he's actually still alive and in jail. Um, he's never shown any remorse for any of his actions. Between 1988 and 2014, he actually tried to sue the courts in jail multiple <laughs> times for violation of his rights. Wow. He tried to say that he was a Satanist and was denied his worship rights by the prison Murdering. ward people. Ah, okay. Um, he's appealed the life sentences several times and had his final appeal denied in 2017, so three years ago. So it's official that he will be spending the rest of it. He'll die in jail. Um, the saddest part of the story, though, was that the father of the wife and the two children who were murdered died in 2014, so he didn't get to... He wasn't alive when the right. final appeal was denied, so he unfortunately passed away not knowing 100% that Daniel LaPlante would stay in jail, jail forever. Yeah, so he's still he's still alive and in I looked it up, he's still alive and in jail to this day. Yeah. And he's like it was 1986, so he's like 50 something now. Yeah. Late 40s, early like your parents' age. Yeah. It's crazy that there are a, a mix between people who commit these crimes that go to jail and spend life sentences in jail and um, some show remorse for their actions, some decide that they can be released from jail but they choose to stay in jail. Yeah. Um, and then there's just some people like Danny LaPlante who just have no remorse for what they've done. And he was 17. Yeah. When he killed three people. Well, one person, two, two children. children. But it's not even just killed. Like, shooting someone is one thing, but, like, kids don't drown themselves. Yeah. Like, you've had to hold them under the bathwater. There's also a like, difference between shooting someone in the head, like, say, self-defense or from, like, six feet away. Mm, but like, point, point blank. blank. And several times. Yeah. Like, dude, that she's dead. Yeah. Once was enough. Yeah, it's a bit of a bummer of a story. It's a huge bummer of a story. It's a classic case of the system failing these yeah, people. Yeah, like, I think it was because technically the only thing they could really charge him on was, like, trespassing, I guess. Yeah, it's tricky because he didn't necessarily kill anyone stalking. and what he was doing was wrong, but there's no, uh, like, real implication to say you can yeah go and just kind of like of release him into society and be like okay off you go yeah. daddy try so not to do anything that, wrong that's the thing that needs to be worked on is um yeah because it was the the thing with the um making a murder documentary had it um with um what's the Stephen avery it's at Stephen avery um where the real person who the, who did the crime that he was accused of of the rape and murder? Oh, the, the original beach. rape the was actual... like someone who'd been released, wasn't yeah. it? And then yeah, and committed another rape, and then now he's, he he can't be found mm. anywhere. He's gone. Yeah, um, which is just a classic case of just again someone 
being arrested and then released and they go off and do the exact same mm. crime. You know, and the whole point of these whole prison systems is to rehabilitate someone to re uh to to be released back into reality and to the modern society. And it's also so crazy be. because it was in the late 80s. So this was really like obviously they still didn't have great technology and they still didn't have really good systems around like criminal profiling, but mm. It was the time, like, when you actually look at all the, like, big serial killers, they were all between, like, 60s and 90s. Like, it yeah. was the the golden time of the, the crazy serial killer. Like, come on, man. you got to know. Kid that looks like that. <laughs> you just look at him and go, you should not be in society. You will not be a lawyer. <laughs> you are not going to be an upstanding member of society. You know what's fucked up is I keep thinking of the 70s as, like, 30 years ago and it's like 50 yeah at this point it's fucked up mm-hmm. it's that, that that's like what was i saying scary. to you the other day when i see oh i was reading oh they said it on this video i was watching it was the 20th anniversary of american psycho yeah and when they s- said that my brain like, was like fuck, oh what? like 1995 yeah. and i was like no 2000 2000 there are adults who are the legal drinking age who were born in 2002. Oh, How oh. fucked up is that? It makes me feel so old. It's, it's gross. I don't want to be living in this era anymore. I want to go back 10 years. I don't want to go back 10 years. It was not a good time for me in my <laughs> teens. I go back to being like 22, 23. That was, I feel like I peaked at like 23. Yeah. Okay. Allow me to sip my wine before I transition into my deep dive segments of the podcast. Yeah, you took like a lot of notes as well. I did. I, um, so, um, I, so what I'll basically be doing is, um, taking a deep dive into specific serial killers, um, and I won't necessarily cover every single aspect and like, every detail with them it'll probably be broken down to um different episodes like so maybe like a couple episodes later i might continue on this specific person um but for today we will be taking a look at the notorious serial killer son of sam just remember to put a showbiz twist on it. A little showbiz Son of Sam. Yes, I'd like you to do the entire presentation in cabaret style singing, oh God. please. No. Thank you. We're not that kind of show. We don't get paid enough for we that We should shit. be that type. Of, can you imagine that? What, if we got paid to do that? No, like a, a podcast about serial killers where they sang in the entire thing. Nothing but cabaret. Thing. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. You could make it like... Riverdale, where we have like a oh, musical Christ. episode. Oh, <laughs> God, no. Like every season, we have one musical episode where all we do is sing. It's such a weird thing for a show like Riverdale. I know. Riverdale's. Makes no sense. I've only watched like four episodes of the first season because I already got confused. Like just right out the gate, I got confused. Oh, really? Yeah. What was confusing about it? Everything. I don't know why anyone does what they do. Makes no sense. It's also loosely connected to the Sabrina universe. Mm-hmm. It's by the same creators, I think. Yeah. Which is fucked up because Sabrina is such a 
really interesting, spectacular story. Whereas Riverdale is kind of just a fucking mess. Well, some people find Riverdale a spectacular story. Yeah, but, I mean, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'm going to say on the topic. It's not. Okay. I'm going to kick into the story of Son of Sam, um, which some people are aware of um, most aspects of it. Um, uh, I know bits about it. Mindhunter um, delved into it quite a bit they um their casting for the son of sam was spectacular do you, do you remember that the the um actor they had in to oh, play oh yeah but their like casting is in insane. general is incredible um so th- this information comes um courtesy to obviously wikipedia um mindhunters and uh youtube's um creator called biographics um Thank you for all your uh, extensive research for me to do research into your research, essentially. Um, so basically, it's like the cliff notes of murder. Yeah, kind of. Wow. That's a really interesting way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Isn't it weird that we have this whole like part of society that just loves to do cliff notes on other people's works of murders of just yeah like, so we can killer. all be lazy yeah yeah well i'm no i'm also mean like we are obsessed with serial killers and and it's like it's not just a thing like a thesis on some sort of mathematical problem or like archaeology it's fucking serial killers do you know what i find strange though like stranger than that is when i hear people that aren't interested in it yeah and i'm like how what the fuck is wrong with you like my manager at work finds it so strange that i listen to like my favorite murder and love to watch like true crime documentaries and she's like doesn't it like freak you out and i'm like no it weirdly makes me feel like more prepared yeah like if someone was to kidnap me i would know from my extensive true crime podcast listening how to get i don't know i wouldn't know how to explain it how to explain the fascination behind it it just is a fascination yeah it's weird so you can't explain why okay anyway i'm gonna try and stop interrupting you so son of sam um everyone knows him as the satanist um, committed a lot of murders in New York. Uh, would love to send letters to police. Loved publicity. Um, signed his letters off as Son of Sam, which... Um, Do we know why? Yeah, and I will get into okay. that. So, um, Son of Sam's real name, uh, well, his um, name he's referred to is David Berkowitz, but his, uh, his name from birth is Richard David Falco. He was born on June first, nineteen fifty-three. Falco. Yeah, that Falco is, is a sick name. name. Uh, he was born to his mother Betty Broder, who had been previously married to a man called Tony Falco. Uh, Falco had left Broder for another woman, um, so Broder began a new relationship with a man named Joseph Kleinman. Uh, Broder and Falco already had a child together when Kleinman, um, before. Uh, the separation and the relationship with Kleiman. When Kleiman found out that Broder was pregnant, he pressured her to give up the child for adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, he also forbid uh, Betty Broder from giving uh, this child his last name. So instead, mm-hmm. she used Tony Falco's last name, her former husband, 
um, to refer to him, and, and thus... What a way to give a kid an identity crisis. Yeah. Richard David Falco was born. And I also feel like as soon as you w- use the word forbid in the context of, of, a, re- of a relationship, yeah. it's like, red flag alert. <laughs> Unless you like, I forbid you from like fucking eating your own poo or something. Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty good standard. But even that's just like a given, like just don't eat your shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't have to fig- forbid you to do that. Imagine that, just like on a first date. Look, I'd just like to set some I have a ground, few ground rules, rules. <laughs> before we go on this date. I don't like people eating poo. Um, I don't like people who talk a lot. I forbid you from talking. Yeah. Uh, so a few days after um, Richard's birth, uh, he was adopted by a middle-aged couple, Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz. I love the name Pearl. It's a quite nice name, isn't it's it? It's so wholesome. Yeah. I, there's, I think it's mostly because I, I get it from um, the drag queen, Pearl. It's just a nice, simple name. Mm, it's I also just think like it an sounds... old bitty name. Pearl and Peggy just sound so, like, wholesome. Yeah. Um, so they lived in the Bronx in New York together. Um, the Berkowitz couple owns a hardware store where Nathan Berkowitz um, spent most of his time uh, working. He never grew close to David due to his work schedule, and he also felt the adoption was uh, a mistake. Mm. So he never grew close to David. Um, Pearl, however, was very close to David as he was her only son. And they developed quite an extensive relationship and um, came very close. Pearl often indulged David and let him get away with things he probably shouldn't have as a child. Um, Either from this or just the way he was born and grew up, David developed into a hyperactive, mischievous child. Um... He was quite a bulky kid when he was young and would use his size to exert power over other students uh, and showed little interest in school, uh, often faking illnesses and coming up with excuses and missed most of his uh, school life. Hmm. Um, And what's funny is to touch on something you mentioned earlier where there's a kind of a pattern with a lot of serial killers with um, neglect and... Did he have a head injury? He had a head injury. Yes. He was hit by a car at seven years old suffering a head injury. There's so many of them. Yeah. Like there's this whole theory that like serial killers are not born. Like there's no person that's just born evil. Like you either have childhood trauma that fucks you up or Or you have like physical head injury. It's so interesting. Like the more you read about it, the more you hear... Like, there was another serial killer, I can't remember which one it was, that fell off a swing as a kid. And then the swing, you know those real thick rubber ones that, like, hurt? The swing, as he was sitting on the ground, the swing came and whacked him right in the back of the head when he was a kid? Mm. Rough. Um, So, after this injury, um, it's not clear if this had any long-term effects on David, um, but it's widely thought as we were just saying it's widely suspected that yeah it's a very weird like coincidence similarity that's like too many of them have it for it to be a coincidence well even after soon after this injury he started showing weird signs uh of a fascination with fire and arson Mm. um so he began burning bugs and then slowly progressed into small fires in his area um, at this point, his adopted parents take him to a psychotherapist. Um, 
due to the whole arson um, aspect of his life. And at 14 years old, um, his mother, Pearl, passes away from breast cancer after fighting it for two years. Oh, and she was like the only one that really like loved him. She was the only person that David was ever close with and had any kind of a relationship mm. with. He was a completely introverted person, distant from everybody else, had yes, no relationship that's with like his father. That's like the last sort of tie. That was the cut. what's often thought as the flipping upside down moment into mm. Berkowitz's life. Tipping point? The was tipping that? point. Well, I, yeah, I guess but his life was literally flipped upside down. Yeah, I is guess. what so. I'm trying to ref- yeah. uh, get at. But um a year later, he keeps progressively becoming more introverted, um, falls into a dark depression. Uh, he has still no relationship with his father, and even less so once his father remarries. Um, his new stepmother is even more distant than his adopted father. Adopted father. Um, the isolation culminating when his family relocates to Miami, Florida. No family, no uh, no family connection, no friends, just nothing. Mm. In 1971, when David uh, turns 18, he joins the army and he's stationed in Korea. And Oh, and that shit fucks you yeah, up. Yeah. Um, he actually takes to the discipline quite well, um, supposedly, and becomes quite a good marksman. And three years later... Which is in, unfortunate for anyone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is fucked up, considering he's killed people. Yeah. Which is very bad he for the victims. He was an excellent shot. Never he, missed. He had great training. <laughs> <laughs> what um, was that? Sorry to interrupt. What's that? Um, the Oh, my God. What show is it from where it's talking about... Oh, fuck, I can't remember what show it is where they're talking about. And no one in my family has ever had any sort of mental health issues, except there was one uncle who was a little bit crazy, but even he had perfect eyesight, which was unfortunate for the people below the clock tower. <laughs> what is that from? I don't know. It's <laughs> hilarious. Though. Oh, that's going to annoy I me. Know. Maybe gonna, it'll come to you later. I'm going to attempt to Google it while I... Uh, so... He is honorably just dis- discharged in 1974, three years later. Um, after leaving the army, David moves to New York and lives alone. He's um, he saved up quite a bit of money while he was in the army and uh, enough to rent an apartment in the Bronx. And he starts taking classes at, the, at um, Bronx University. Uh, during his time in university, people remembered him as an angry, argumentative person who shunned association with others. Um, you know, he worked a few jobs such as, um, security and, and, uh, driving a cab during this time as well. Um, though it was quiet, David quickly came to the attention of, uh, his local neighbors and the police department. Um, he would often instigate petty disputes with them, um, which would then escalate to personal threats. Uh, an example of which was his downstairs neighbor, Charles Glassman, who was a de- um, deputy police sheriff, uh, received four handwritten threats from Berkowitz uh, during his uh, stay in the, sa- in the same area as Glassman. Something really spooky about handwritten, handwritten threats, threats. Exactly, yeah. Which actually, incidentally, comes into play later on in his, uh, I guess, killing career. Um, in his late early, uh, sorry, in his early twenties, um, Berkowitz reconnects with his birth mother, um, and his half sister Rosalind. Um, 
he begins regularly visiting with his half-sister, Rosalind, of his um, birth mother. However, once he finds out that uh, Broda gave him up for adoption on request of her husband, he cuts ties with both women out of his life forever. Never returns to visit them or gets in contact with them ever again. Um, Just quickly, it was How I Met Your Mother. Ah, yes. When Robin meets Ted's mother for the first time and he talks about how just be careful she's going to start talking about marriage and kids and then she doesn't and like Robin freaks out she's like why don't you want me to have Ted's kids do you want to have Ted's kids no do you want to have my grandkids no but I want you to want me to have your grand anyway continue (laughs) we don't need the recite or do they I don't know maybe let's leave it in the comments if you want Laura to recite entire scenes from how I met your mother let's read the entire transcript yeah why not um, so he cuts ties with these two women out of his life forever in, uh, around this time in, um, 1974, uh, sorry, around, yeah, 1974, he starts to develop a fascination with fire again. So 1974, so he's the same 24? Year. He is, no, he's, uh, nah, 23, I believe. Okay. Uh, or, yes, no, 21, I think. Okay. I mean, it's not important. I'm just yeah. curious. Sorry. I believe he's 21. Um, he's young. Yeah. Over the next three years from 1974, he sets more than 1,500 fires around the city of New York. Over three years. 1,500. Talk about a slow <coughs> burner. In his journal, he details each and every arson in uh, in detail, dubbing himself as the Phantom of the Bronx. Oh, that's interesting. Which doesn't exactly have the same ring to it as some no. saying, which is like great that he makes a switch. He's, later on. he's trying out different <coughs> names, seeing what he feels comfortable with yeah, before he commits to actually murdering people. You know, the 1975 were called Drive Like I Do before they landed mm, on that name. You know, that's that's what they say. Not the same S- ring. Start a fire, come up with a nickname. Yeah. I think Maroon 5 were called something stupid before they were Maroon 5. I thought you were going to say, I think Maroon 5 used <laughs> to start fires. <laughs> <laughs> um, they might have. Alan Levine's Start fires hot. in the music industry. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so obviously fire, uh, at arson gives him some sort of re- resemblance of control in his life, which is something that he is That's obviously lacking. crazy though. So you said 1500 fires in three years. In three years. So like, if you actually do the math, that's more than a fire a day. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause 1500 divided by three is 500. Yeah. So that's more than there are days in the year. So that's more than a fire a in fire a year. In some form or another, he has uh, a record of arson. <coughs> lighting that's some sort of crazy. fire. Um, in 1975, he also starts to develop a fascination with Satanism. Um, so he begins reading the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, who is the founder of the Church of Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he becomes convinced that he is controlled by evil spirits. Which um, I'll get into maybe another episode. I'll get into that whole conspiracy. Um, because doesn't he not actually believe that? Well, that it's a that? it's a thought. Uh, yeah. But I will. I'll, I'll probably get into that. I'll talk about that in the later 
episode to come. Is Son of Sam, I won't like spoil it, but is Son of Sam the dog one or am I getting, mm-hmm. yeah, yep. okay. Uh, his first attack detailed in 1975, Christmas Eve, he takes a hunting knife and Ooh, hunting knife Again, out. hunting knife is like the same <laughs> like the, the f- family of like a hatchet. There's yeah. something There's so something terrifying about so it. vigorous and like harsh about it. Yeah. Uh, he takes a hunting knife out and looks to satif- satisfy his murderous intents. Uh, so you'd <coughs> mentioned that he liked to light bugs on fire, but uh, is there any other sort of like, did he like torture animals or he like escalated literally to like killing people? Um, I mean, not nothing yet. Mm. Oh, sure. He has like some sort of. Yeah. Because um, that's normally like you, you read that's like the general, they like escalate slowly. Yeah. I mean, um. It's kind of weird because, no, he doesn't really have yeah. that kind of lead up. It kind of just starts to surface. And then later on, I'll get into it, but basically yeah. um, <clears throat> it's kind of like a re- reverse or, or like a um, a mixed match. Um, <clears throat> so 1975, Christmas Eve, he takes his uh, hunting knife. His first uh, victim of assault was a woman leaving a grocery store. He stabs her several times, but she manages to escape and survive. He then, later on that night, comes across six, uh, 15-year-old Michelle Former, who she who he stabs six times before she fights him off and runs to a nearby apartment for shelter and survives. She gets stabbed six times. And survives. I guess, like, getting... S- you say the word stabbed and you assume that's, like... But you could get, like, stabbed in she had the arm six or... puncture wounds, so that just entails that she got stabbed six times. Yeah. And it's, like, does, you don't know how deep or... Or know, where they are. Where it is. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, a month later, January 1976... He relocates from the Bronx to a rental house in the Yonkers. In the he, where? In sorry, in Yonkers, not the Yonkers. Yonkers, I love that. You know what? Is Yonkers. that actually what it's called? Yeah, it's in um New York. Yonkers, I love that. Um, it's like uh like north of New York City, I believe. It's my new favorite place. Yeah, it's cool. Um, his landlord who owns his property, uh also owns a German shepherd that would bark incessantly and he claims oh, that the dog die? he claims that this dog was possessed by Satan and the barking oh, was orders okay. for him to kill this is, women. This, this is the dog, okay. Um, so working as a night shift, working as a security guard night shift um, at the time, after three months, uh, he gets fed up with the dog barking and decides to move to a different apartment in Yonkers. Um... However, he can't seem to escape the barking of dogs. Wherever he goes, he can hear barking somewhere. Hmm. Uh, so he took it as a sign that Satan was trying to drive him mad and forcing him to murder. So he develops a Molotov cocktail to try and kill the dog belonging oh. to his neighbor, a man named Sam Carr. When he fails, he shoots the dog, killing the dog. I hate it when the dog dies. He... Convinces himself that the owner of the dog, Sam Carr, was possessed by the devil, and from him he dubs himself the son of Sam. Right. Hence the name. So uh, a couple months later, June 1976, he decides uh, he needs a new method of murder because he's first 
two botch attempts. He's didn't just work outgrown out. the hunting knife. <clears throat> yeah, the hunting knife didn't work out too it's well. It's just not an efficient way to kill people. He decides to build up an arsenal of a forty-four caliber revolver, a Commando Mark III rifle, a Glenfield sniper rifle, Charter Arms AR-7 shotgun, and a twelve-gauge Deerslayer shotgun. Jesus. So he's He's building something up. What's even more <laughs> fucked up about the American system is it probably would have been like super easy for him to get all of those as long yeah, as he especially, had a gun license. Um, New York back then too, I believe. They, I think it was legal mm. for them to own to to buy guns. But now it's like it's not a thing in New York. You yeah, can't <coughs> legally buy guns. Um, so there's a during this time he quits his job as a security. Um, with security, starts working for a taxi company called Co-op City, um, which lasts no more than a month, I believe. And then he leaves that job, finds another one. Um, <clears throat> but July 1976, he decides to strike again and leaves his home with a revolver in his paper bag. Right. He drives around. He's looking for a victim. He finds 18-year-old Donna Loria and 19-year-old Jody Valenti talking in their car outside Donna's apartment. He walks to the passenger side, crouches down in a shooting position, grabs the forty-four revolver with both hands, and empties the chamber into the passenger side of the car. Shoots both Donna and Valenti. Um, however... Um, Valenti survives, but Donna is killed with the fire. Wait, what was her name, Valenti? Uh, v- Jody Valenti. Oh, she survives. Right. This is the okay, and gotcha. Donna Loria right. is killed. Um, after this murder, he's filled with euphoria. He starts to build a, an addiction of the murder. Mm. Um, three months later, in October, he decides to attack again. He's cruising around. Same idea, um, uh, looking for a, a victim at night, driving around in his car in Queens. He spots two people in a red Ford Galaxy. Um, and he notes that the one of the, the woman, um, who's one of these two people, uh, has long black hair, which he apparently finds attractive. He begins following uh, both people uh, in his car. Once they stop, he parks up behind them. Um the people he pulls up behind is 20-year-old Carl De Niro and 18-year-old date um, he's, he has on the night, Rosemary Keenan. Now, Keenan was the daughter of an NYC police officer. Um, and same after this last time, he pulls up, he walks up to the passenger side, empties the chamber, of, or, uh, sorry, he fires five times, rather, um, into the passenger side. One... A bullet crashes into Carl's head, but Rosemary escapes unharmed, um, causing a commotion by honking the horn and trying to drive away. Mm. Um, She escapes. Um, David leaves the scene, uh, and later on, uh, Rosemary returns um, and drives Carl to the hospital. He survives with and has... Getting shot in the head. And... Doctors place metal plates into his skull. Shit. But he survives. That's the other... There's a weird thing about getting shot in the head. Richard Romero shot a bunch mm. of people in the head and they survived. Yeah. 
like it's, a shocking amount of people. Sort of, it depends. I guess it depends on where you where in get. the head you like get. Y- shot. Your your skull can yeah. literally bend a bullet around. Like it can stop a bullet. Yeah, true. I guess you just hear get sh- <clears throat> shot in the head, and you yeah. assume like I guess if you get shot, gone. say like on the outside of your temple, and it sort of skims around your skull. Yeah, you're gonna have a skull fracture, but no- nothing's gonna do- yeah, affect your grey matter. That's true. Um. Month later, he strikes again. Uh, Joanne Lamino and Dona DeMasi, teen- two teenagers, are walking home from the movies. Um, David Bergowitz follows them. And as they stand at the stoop of Joanne's house, t- uh, just talking to each other, he opens fire on them. Uh, bullets tear through both of the teenage girls, and neither of them are killed. However, Joanne was paralyzed from the waist down. Oh, that's sad. Um, so he's escalated from three months apart to one month to apart. To one month apart. Yeah. Uh, now, in January 1977, which is, I believe, um, like the next year over. So he has a, f- he has a few more months right. where he waits. Okay. Um, he shoots and kills Christine Fr- uh, Frund, I believe. Mm-hmm. Christine Frund, who was sitting in her car, same as the first few victims. And then later on in March of the same year, he kills 20-year-old Bulgarian immigrant Virginia Foskarikian. So these are all women, apart from the... The one man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was walking home from, her Columbia, from Columbia Uni when... Um, he, she came face to face with David Berkowitz and he shoots her point blank in the face <clears throat> and when leaves her to die, walks away. Okay. Uh, April 1976. No, that's not right. Sorry. Um, April 1977 of the same year. Um, he attacks v- Valentina Sarayan and Alexander Sal, uh, who he shoots in the car again from the passenger side. Sarani dies at the scene. Sal later um, dies hours later. I've got to think for cars as well. It's parked cars at the front of apartments or wherever they are. The Zodiac Killer had a thing for cars too, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that they're literally sitting ducks Mm. in their car. They can't move. They can't go anywhere. So it's an easier target for him. Um, However... This murder is different as police find a letter left behind by the killer. Um, The letter reads, uh, and I quote, I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else. Programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. I am the monster. Beelzebub. The chubby behemoth. I love to hunt. Prowling the street, looking for fair game, tasty meat. The Ooh. women queens are the prettiest of all. Gross. So by now, um, that's so like weirdly complimentary, but yeah, creepy. At the but same very time. creepy. By now, the whole of New York is in an uproar. So people are freaking yeah, the as fuck you out. Would be. The most interesting thing I found about this whole ordeal. So it's like, um. What is it? 1977, he starts the attacks. Um, He starts the attacks in 76. So he's got a year's worth of attacks, pretty much. Mm. Um, New York's freaking out. 
there's um the fear within New York uh set for like the next attack happening leads to a rush of handgun sales and emptying of uh entertain night nighttime entertainment venues. Mm, okay. Um the most um interesting of all is due to the majority of the victims being long dark haired women, overnight hairstyles changed. So women were cutting their hair, dyeing their hair, trying to look nothing oh, like to not be this like child because most of the victims were long yeah. dark hair um so coverage went global um the attacks continued with regularity soon after the next being in june 1977 um judy uh placide 17 years old and sal lupo 20 uh, both sitting in lupo's car when berkowitz attacks both survived the attack um, however, uh, but then later on in the next month over, July, he attacks Bobby Violante and Stacy Moskowitz, both 20 years old and shot in the head. Um, Stacy dies two days later after being in critical condition and Violante survives, however, losing 90% of his vision. Mm. Um, now, the important thing about Stacy Moskowitz is she was the very last victim that the son of Sam ever killed. Okay. So, March 30th. So, nine- how many people did he actually uh, kill? I didn't write it down. I'm sure it's somewhere. But it's like, I think ballpark, like, seven, eight. Like, a lot. Mm. A lot of people he killed. This kitten just... <clears throat> I don't know if you can hear her yeah, constant. Hear her. She's having a sook because she keeps trying to climb onto the kitchen table and i keep stopping her and she's not impressed um march 30th 1977 famous new york times writer jimmy breslin receives a handwritten letter from someone who has signed the letter as son of sam um the letter reads mr and i quote mr breslin sir don't think that because you haven't heard from me in a while that i went to sleep no rather i am still here like a spirit roaming the night Thirsty, hungry, seldom to seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face some day, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking thirty eights. End. Breslin contacts the police with this letter. Um, and from the letter, they noticed uh, it contains details related to crimes not yet released to the public. So they decide oh, so they to know it's from him. Yeah. Um, but they decide to let the New York Times publish some of the details pertaining to these crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and accompanied by Breslin's response for Son of Sam, which is uh, it's basically long-winded um, response urging him to turn himself in Mm. um and this was to spread awareness of the son of sam um uh and now that like it was confirmed that it was from him they're releasing the uh the some of the details from the murders uh from the crimes um that copy of the new york times sold over one million copies that's a lot so after this, New York Police Department formed Operation Omega, which was supposedly the most comprehensive investigation in its history. Okay. 300 detectives work around the clock. Um, 
of the night uh, on the night of uh, Muskowitz and Violante's shooting, uh, a woman named Cecilia Davis was walking her dog when she saw an officer ticketing a young man in a car parked alongside the fire, hyd- fire hydrant. Mm-hmm. And she remembers it distinctly um, because soon after she saw the same man who was being ticketed walk past her, staring at her menacingly. And it was enough to freak her out yeah. as she ran home. Yeah. Because um, you got to remember, during this time, there's well, this people are freaking out. So things freaking like out that murder. People are changing in their your head. head. Yeah. yeah. So anyone, it's like with the, uh, I kind of like to relate it to now, like the the virus. Um, this whole pandemic is causing people just to sort of stay Panic. a little bit further yeah. away from people. It's, um, it's it's just due to the times. <clears throat> um. So after the murders, the murder happens. Um. That night. Uh, afterwards, she decides to contact the police, uh, and the police department decide to uh, bring in every single driver who was ticketed that night in for questioning, including David, um, Tom mm. himself. He. So sorry. <coughs> did she see the man that was being ticketed the same night that he stared at her? Yeah. Okay. So later on that night, he walks past her right and is staring at her okay. and that's why she remembers him being ticketed because it was the same man um okay so detectives try calling um david with no answer with no um answers at all they decide to contact the yonkers police station to um try to get help into contacting him there's the dispatcher that the detective is talking to incidentally happens to be the daughter of Sam Carr, former neighbor of son of Sam. Mm. Um, and did they like remember him being a weirdo or so he decides to interview Sam Carr, who remembers um, David uh, as the man who and informs the detective as David is the one who shot his dog. Jesus. Um, yeah, because you wouldn't forget that. No, fuck no. So he's describing him physically and psychologically, and the profile matches almost like perfectly with the profile mm. of the son of Sam. Yeah. Um. So slowly, well, actually not slowly, quickly, evidence starts building against um son of Sam quickly, um and uh, suspected arson that was reco- reported close to David's apartment, um. Police decide to interview his former neighbor Charles Glassman, um, who he who was the um, is he the one with the German he shepherd? Was, he was the one with the German right. shepherd, the former landlord of his. Um, and Glassman shows the detective all of the threatening letters that David had sent to him oh, about his while dog. he was living. Um. So then, August tenth, nineteen seventy-seven, detectives found his find his Ford Galaxy parked at us outside his apartment, his current apartment. Yeah. Without a warrant, they decide to search his car. Back seat, there's a duffel bag with a sniper rifle on it. In the glove department, there's a handwritten letter addressed to the Suffolk, uh, sorry, the Suffolk County Police Department. I'm really bad with American pronunciation. No, Suffolk was right. Suffolk, yeah. Um. Warning uh, them of a coming attack at a at a local disco um, that he was planning on uh, right. visiting and yep. murdering someone. 
Uh, one officer decides to leave to get a warrant, while the other remains by the vehicle in case he, he comes up. out, he shows up, um, and he hails down a, a civilian to park in front of um, David's car in case he comes back, just to kind of park him in and yeah. keep him there. Um, while this is happening, uh SWAT team is Imagine deployed. Imagine being that civilian. <clears throat> yeah, you're like, you'd hey, we're like, trying to catch a murderer. You'd be like, why am I parking this person in we can't uh we, we can't, we can't tell you that. that well am i in danger <coughs> i can't, can't tell you that, that either <laughs> <laughs> i can't disclose this information so you a swat team is, depl- is 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 uh, deployed around the area um and at 10 30 p.m david decides to enter his car um the detective taps on his window david rolls down his window slowly looks at him and says quote and i quote well you got me. How come it took you such a long time? Oh, imagine being that cop. Just Fuck. fucking oh. chills. So he admits to all the attacks. Like, all of them. Have they made a movie about this? No, they should. They need to. <clears throat> so he admits to every single one of the attacks. Not just the murders, the attacks, the first two, everything. Mm. Um, and on August 11th, 1977, he's charged with second-degree murder of Stacey Moskowitz. Um, he pleads guilty to all six counts of murder against his um, lawyer's wishes. His lawyer wanted him to plead his sanity. Mm. Um, but he kind of like wanted to go to jail by the sounds of it. He he did. Uh, and I think, what, which I'll get into afterwards, um, like, an, like another time, but um, he had a time where he was trying to plead insane due to like um while he was in prison he was trying to plead that he was insane and like yeah. he's telling his psychi- psychologist um that he was insane due to the whole murderous satan mm. dog um but he pleads guilty to all six counts and he's sentenced to six consecutive life sentences um and it was what's really interesting is oh this <coughs> guy sorry i just looked up his yeah. um What's really interesting is, um, same as with your story, um, he's in prison to this day. Oh, is he still alive? Still alive. Yep. Shit. What's interesting and a almost a like a a complete one eighty of um, what was your guy's name again? Danny Laplante. Danny Laplante. He was. Um, he could have. Uh, he could have um, been released on bail. I don't know. Um, good behavior. I think he could have been released on good behavior after like two years, I believe. No, something like that. Like he he spent a few years in jail, and he he had the chance to leave, but decided um that he he wanted to stay in jail. Um, this is the part I haven't researched too much, so I don't know exact specifics. Mm. I know um while he was in jail, he was referred to as Berserkowicz. Berserkowitz yeah. because he was compl- insane and angry yeah. and satanist and would like not get along with anyone at all. However, during his prison sentence, he becomes a born again Christian. Well, that's interesting. And he just—I'm looking at his photo, like now of his. What's he hilarious. just looks like yeah. the old dude next door who would like help you mow your lawn. What's funny is when he was arrested. People were disappointed with the way he looked. He like does they not. They were expecting like a Ted Bundy. He doesn't have like crazy eyes. <clears throat> he yeah. just looks like 
they were expecting like this real dark, twisted-looking person who t- who would be like a Ted Bundy kind of person. Or like, like he a- kind of looks a little bit like my uncle Colin. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he becomes a born again Christian, and uh, at some point during his sentence, I'm not too sure when it was during the sentence, but it was while he was um a born again Christian. Yeah, he admits to all the wrongdoings. He says he feels great remorse for what he's done. Um. And he, I think, yeah, like he was allowed to leave prison at some point and every single, every single, every two years, I think it was uh, since 2002, he was allowed to leave, I believe. And he's just willingly. He's willingly like, I don't want to leave. Like, I cannot leave. I've done a wrong thing. I will die in prison um, and I will live with my. He also may not like trust himself to not do it again. No. No, that's the thing. He's like, I, you know, have seen the light with God and I've like, you know know what I've done is wrong, yeah. but I can't be let out. I can't be trusted. Wow. <clears throat> it's fucking fascinating. I didn't, um, yeah, I didn't, I really didn't know that much about the story of Son of mm-hmm. Sam, apart from the fact that he tried to say initially it was a dog and then like yeah. recanted on that. So he said a dog uh, that was possessed by Satan was t- telling him to kill women. But then he re- told that, like, came back, came out and said that was all a lie, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, which is, I'll get into, I'll probably get into that and do a bit more research into that maybe a later episode, because that's a whole thing in itself. That's yeah. a lot to get into. Um, but yeah, that's essentially it. He tried to mm. play it off as... It um, was not me, it was the dog. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't me. It was Satan... Who possessed this dog who told me to do this. Interesting. So We've that been is going the story. for two hours. I think it's only been an hour because I, th- I saw it started at one. Yeah, I was going to say, it does not feel <coughs> like we've been going for no. two hours. Um, but yeah, that's the story of Son of Sam. I really liked that one. Yeah. I mean, I've I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> that was my up. favorite one. Uh, I'd like to get into story. Ed Kemper at some point. Oh my God. Um, I, I We'll do, out. we'll do Ed Kemper next episode. So we're going to be doing this every single Thursday. Every single Thursday, motherfuckers. Yeah, we've committed. <clears throat> by next Thursday, we will have a name. Yep. Well, um, by th- this episode coming out, we'll have, we'll have a oh, name. Oh, yeah. Um, which, by the way, we don't have a name for this show yet. But we will. We will have a name for it. It still falls under the, the mother group of four millennials, but it will have its own unique name to distinguish it from the big collective that is Bored Millennials podcast. Um, so I guess next week I'll talk about Ed Kemper, maybe. <clears throat> what? Why you? I want to talk about Ed Kemper. Okay. Well, I mean, I love that's Ed. Not I your mean, thing. I don't love Ed Kemper. You, well, what do you mean it's not my thing? I wanted to do a true crime podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, you can talk about. I'll talk about whatever the fuck I want to talk about. Oh, wow. Can't tell me what to do, bitch. Um, all right, well, you can talk about Ed Kemper. Maybe I'll talk about the Manson family. Yeah, you... We've been joined by the second oh child. Christ. What do you want? That's what I thought. <laughs> um, okay, well, anyway, we'll have, um... We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll have our topics decided for next week. But this is really fun. I really enjoyed yeah. this. Yeah, also, just as a as a footnote for anyone who doesn't personally know us, because I feel like to begin with, it's probably going to just be our friends listening to this. Yeah. We have three cats. So if this podcast 
Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, just had a technical difficulty with his mic stand. microphone attacked me, trying um, to stab you in the neck. So it's like highly likely that our podcasts are going to, going to be regularly interrupted by, by one of our cats. Yeah, if not meowing, like jumping on the fucking table and knocking things over. Or some, some sort of friggin' nuisance. There'll be something. Yeah, so we've got Pie, Toffee and Peach. Pie is our eldest. He's a, he's a kilo overweight, apparently. Uh, Toffee is our golden middle child. Yeah, she's our good and girl. And Peach is the naughty little kitten who just cannot do what she's told. currently playing with a mic cable as well. Like a noose wrapped around her neck. Yeah, good on you. Um, so, yeah, this, this won't be replacing um, the other podcast. We're trying to work out something um, with the whole quarantine. Maybe we'll do something on Zoom. Um, we'll work something out, but we'll we'll resume that. Um, figure something out, and in the meantime, this show will be every Thursday. Um, as for the collective one with everybody, um, I don't know. It'll kind of just for now. It's weird to do because it's other people, and you and I live together, and it's easy to do a show together. But fucking wait, every- you live here? Yeah. I live Since in, when? I sleep on the couch. Wow. Who gave you a key? Do you think I could, do you think I could sleep in the bed tonight, <laughs> <laughs> honey? Um, we'll see. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, swag. We'll figure something out. I feel like we should end this on like a talk about something happy, positive. Yeah. Um. <laughs> What has been something positive that's happened? Yeah, it's all a bit like doom and gloom. It is very doom and gloom. At the moment. We've discovered like the old people that we are. We've discovered TikTok. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. That's been kind of fun. That's been great. Making stupid TikToks. We've been fucking addicted to I've never TikToks. felt so old in my life, but mm. I am enjoying myself regardless. It's been really fun. Um, just every day making like some sort of meme or something. Or you, you're trying for a bit of a slightly more serious approach. Well, yeah, I'm doing a little bit of everything. Yeah. Which everything I've read says like, oh, you should find your niche. Like, but I don't have a niche. My niche is me. You I am cook your my quiche, niche. Samantha. It's not a niche. It's a niche. <laughs> it's a niche. It's just me. Um. So yeah, follow us on TikTok uh, at Laura Laura Elise, Elise Studio. Studio. And you can follow me at Wolf L D. That's W U L F L D. Um, and yeah, that's that's where our kind of focus is at the moment, as well as looking after our latest baby. Yeah, she's been a handful. A fucking nu- a nuisance. She's currently licking my finger. <laughs> Hello, this is this is Kitty ASMR right now. anything go on okay cool thank you for embarrassing me in front of dozens of people that's uh, bold if you to assume that 12 people are going to listen to we actually this. get um a decent amount of plays well, without advertising it that much um cool all right let's wrap it up there um check out our tiktoks for memes because these trying times are very you know, difficult and sad and 
you know, people are passing mm. away and, you know, it's just, it's really not a good time. Um, but I feel like it's kind of... Uh, I think we've managed to, like, start to flatten the curve. Yeah, here. and I and I feel like it's sort Which of showing good. us all as a, as, a, as a community, you know, like, um, a lot of people are really coming together and yeah. celebrities are really starting to, like, you know, put in some hard work to you know, do something about it. Like um, Ethan Klein from H3 is giving away $100,000 to just people who are struggling, I believe. Mm. Something like that. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us on this uh, new show that we're working on. Um, I had a lot of fun doing it and uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun with other fu- future... You just um, whacked a head on the coffee table. <laughs> oh no, she's going to turn into a serial killer now. Okay, well, I think we're going to go. Okay. Thanks for listening and tuning in. Yeah, thanks, Uh, gang. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.